Now, uh, if you are new here this morning, then you probably don't know that we are in the middle of a series entitled Explore God. And what we are doing in this series is essentially what the title implies. Uh, We are exploring the person and nature of God. And the way we are doing that is for seven weeks, we are asking and answering seven very important questions concerning the person and nature of God. And so we began week one by asking and answering the question, does life have a purpose? And then last week, Pastor Lon did a wonderful job of answering the question, is there a God? This morning, as you can tell by the video, we're going to be answering the question, why does God allow suffering? The next week is, is Christianity too narrow? Then week five is, is Jesus really God? Week six is, is the Bible reliable? And then week seven, can I know God personally? And so if this is your first time here, you've come at a perfect time. And hopefully some of these questions reflect some of the questions that you are wrestling with yourself. And so, like I said, this morning, we're going to be addressing that third question, which is why does God allow pain and suffering? Okay. And I would argue that this is probably the one uh, that's the most difficult to navigate, but also this is probably the, the subject that most keeps people from God. The, the, the asking and not having an answer to this question is probably the thing that most keeps people from God. Now, what I want to let you know before I jump in is I'm going to be moving fairly quickly uh, through this just because of time, but I, I hope that you don't confuse my, my brevity with a lack of empathy, okay? Because I'm going to be moving quickly, I don't want you to think, oh, this guy doesn't care or, you know, he, he, he's minimizing what I'm going through. That's not my hope at all. As a matter of fact, if you have any questions as a result of what I say this morning, uh, my email is wfranco at trivillagechurch.org. So W-F-R-A-N-C-O at trivillagechurch.org. And if there's any questions or comments or concerns that you have uh, as a result of this message, please be sure to email me, and I would love to connect with you uh, anytime this week. All right? So why does God allow pain and suffering? Now, this is such a big question um, that I actually have a three-part answer to it. There isn't just a, a, a one answer to it. It's a three-part answer that will build on itself. So well, here's the three parts of the answer that I have to this question. This morning, we're going to begin by looking at the first part of the answer, which is the cause of suffering. Then after we look at the cause of suffering, we're going to look at the purpose of suffering. And then we're going to conclude by looking at the abolition of suffering or the removal of suffering. And you're like, well, if it's removal, why didn't you just say removal? Because abolition makes me sound way smarter. <laughs> okay, so and that's why I did it. So um, it's all about how I look. So, so we're going to look at the cause, the purpose, and the abolition. Okay, so let's begin this morning by looking at the cause of suffering. Where does suffering actually come from? I think that's the first question, we, mini question we have to answer in order to answer the bigger question, right? Where does suffering come from? What is the cause of suffering? And, and to answer that question, I want to go to the book of Genesis. And the book of Genesis is the first book in the Bible. So if you have a Bible, you can turn there. If you don't have a Bible, we have Bibles in that white rack back there. If not, it'll be here on the screen behind me. So we're going to start by looking at the book of Genesis. And in Genesis chapter 2 and 3, we have the explanation of where our suffering comes from, the root and the cause of suffering. Now, before I read it, let me, let me set it up a little bit. So God creates uh, the world in, G- in Genesis chapter 1. Then in Genesis chapter 2, he creates a guy named Adam. And before he creates Eve, he approaches Adam and he says, look, I'm going to put you in this garden and I'm going to give you things to do. And God gives Adam tons of things to do. And there's only one thing that God says Adam cannot do. Only one thing. He says, do not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. It's the only thing that God tells Adam that he cannot do. 
Okay, so now that I've set the stage, look, look what it says. Verse 15 of Genesis chapter 2. It says, The Lord God took the man, Adam, and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and take care of it. And the Lord God commanded the man, You are free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. For when you eat from it, you will certainly die. Okay, I'll explain what God means by that in a second. But then we see in Genesis chapter 3, the very next chapter, so God said, if you eat of it, you'll certainly die. But then the enemy shows up, the serpent shows up, Satan, and says the exact opposite of what God says in, in, in chapter 3, verse 4. He says, you will not certainly die, the serpent said to the woman, for God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be open and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So Here's what happens, okay? God says you can do anything you want except for one thing. Do not eat from this tree. If you eat from the tree, God says you will certainly die. Now, what does God mean by death? Because in, if you know anything about this story, they don't die right away, right? They actually are alive for a lot of time, a lot of years after this. Well, God means by death, there's three layers to this death. There's three levels to the death. First, he says there's spiritual death, which means that from that moment on, the relationship between God and man was never going to be the same again. So there's spiritual death. Then after spiritual death, God then says there's actually relational death. Because not only is the, the vertical relationship with God affected, but the horizontal relationship with one another. And then the last type of death that God's describing is actual physical death. It says that a few, you know, several, you know, years go after this, go on after this, and then they eventually die. But Adam and Eve were never actually supposed to die. So here's what I need you to know. The reason why we have suffering in light of the Christian perspective, the Christian worldview, is because of the decision that Adam and Eve made in the garden. Okay? In other words... Pain and suffering were not part of God's original plan. This was not how things were supposed to go. But because of the decision that they made, that is how pain and suffering showed up. So if there's a part of you that whenever you see suffering, whether it's personal suffering or whether it's you know, a, a school shooting or whether it's the death of, a, of an infant or whether it's the sickness of a friend or whether it's the loss of a job, if suffering has ever gotten you angry, if suffering has ever infuriated you, if there's, if there's something in you that just feels like this is wrong, I'm here to tell you that it is wrong. Suffering is wrong because it was never supposed to be a part of God's original plan. And so the cause, the root of suffering is the decision that Adam and Eve made. God demanded something, they disobeyed it, and that is how suffering and pain entered the world. Now, you might be sitting here right now, and you're like, okay, hold on, hold on, hold on, wait a second, wait a second, wait a second. I don't agree with this at all. You, you mean to tell me that all pain and all suffering comes from some make-believe story in the Old Testament? You mean to tell me that these fictional people that really didn't exist made a decision that really didn't matter, and that's where pain and suffering comes from? That's, that's what you're telling me? That's what I'm telling you. And here's why. Here's why. I don't want you just to have blind faith. Let me, let me, let me, let me poke at your position a little bit. And I, and I do this respectfully, okay? You might not like or even agree with my explanation of suffering. But my question for you is this. What is your explanation of suffering? Right? If, if, if you're so quick to criticize the Christian worldview of suffering, what's your explanation of suffering? Where, where, where do you think suffering came from? Why do we suffer in your worldview? And here's a better question. 
Not only why do we suffer, but how do we suffer in your worldview? I, I read a story uh, in this book I read a few, months, a few years ago on, on evangelism, and, and there was this debate going on between an atheist and a Christian on suffering. And, and the atheist was there not necessarily to defend his position, but to attack the Christian position, right? And they were both professors at a, at a, at a school. There was a Christian professor and an atheist professor. After this debate, they got lunch together, and they're sitting there, and the atheist professor says to him, you know, after all this study, I still don't agree with the Christian position on suffering. And then the other guy was like, well, there's no reason to defend it because I've been defending it for the past few hours with him. He said, instead of saying, hey, let me explain it to you, he was like, let me ask you this then. What's your position on suffering? Like, what's your explanation for it? If, if you don't like my explanation for it, What's your explanation for it? Why does suffering exist in your worldview, and how are we to handle it? And he said that the atheist professor just put his head down and had no answer for it. Because he didn't like the Christian position, but didn't have his own. And I would argue is that many of the arguments you use to, to poke holes in the Christian explanation for, for suffering, if you use the same arguments on your own position, you would see that it takes just as much faith to hold the position you have than the position that we have, okay? Now, let me explain to you why that's the case, okay? I would argue, and this is based on the reading that I've done on this, I would argue, and I don't want to exaggerate here, that there's never been a group of people, a culture, or a society more ill-equipped for suffering than the American Western culture. In the history of humanity, there's never been a culture that is least prepared or more ill-equipped to handle suffering than our culture, which is why we are so traumatized when it shows up, okay? Now, I know that's a big statement, but let me explain to you why. The United States, let me give you a quick history lesson, right? The United States started where? In, in, in 17 what? 70 what? Six, okay? In 1776, you have these guys, these leaders, these, these founders of our religion, of our, of our nation, and they come together and they decide, hey, we're going to start a nation, a nation. Now, many of those people, I'm not going to say they were Christian because many of them were not, but they were deists at least. They believed that there was some type of creator, okay? So when United States was first founded, the, the primary purpose of that, of that people group was monotheism, which by monotheism means a, a worship of one God. That was what motivated them, and that was the primary purpose, right? But here's what started to happen actually fairly quickly after the nation started. Right around that same time, you had the Enlightenment happen, and so people started moving away from God being the purpose for why we existed, Okay? And then in America, it didn't happen in Europe. It literally, this didn't happen anywhere else. It's in the United States. And uh, philosophers and sociologists are blown away by this. But, but what's, what, they say, what they say is that we went from, America went from monotheism, God being our purpose, to patriotism. And all of a sudden, our nation became our God. And you know what's sad about it? That it even started creeping into the church. And so very well-known theologians like Jonathan Edwards are talking about the United States like it's the new Israel that's going to deliver everybody. Clearly, this was before World War I and World War II, and they realized that it wasn't. But, but even the church believed in the patriotism. So we went from monotheism as, as a nation to patriotism. I no longer worship God. I now worship my nation. Now, 
the thing about those first two positions is that at least our purpose came from something bigger than us. So when you suffered under monotheism, you can find hope in God because he was above you, right? When you suffered during patriotism, you, you were willing to suffer for your nation. There was something bigger than you. But here's what happened about 70 years ago. We went from patriotism to individualism. So now, as a nation, the thing that motivates us, our primary purpose for being here as a nation is our individualism. It's no longer about a God. It's no longer about my nation. It's about me. So when suffering comes, there's nothing for you to turn to that's bigger than you because it's all about you. You are the God now. You are the center of that universe. So, so our culture now, the culture that we live in, the reason why they are the most ill-prepared uh, culture an ill-equipped culture ever when it comes to suffering is because what motivates us now more than anything else is the worship of self and reason and freedom. So self, reason, and freedom. It's all about me. And if I can't explain it in my mind, then it's not true. And the thing I need more than anything else is freedom to pursue pleasure and, and anything that my heart desires. Okay. Here's the problem with suffering. Here's why suffering just ruins everything for our modern-day Westerner. Because when suffering shows up, it attacks and dismantles all the things that we've built our worldview on. Since you believe in individualism, when suffering happens, there's nowhere for you to go because it's all about you. And because you believe in reason, you should be able to explain everything, but anyone who's ever suffered here knows that you can't explain suffering many times. So it's inexplicable. So even your reason doesn't work. And then it takes away all your freedom because instead of you having freedom to pursue pleasure and all the other things that you wanted, now suffering came in has become this major obstacle in your pursuit of freedom and pleasure. And that's why there's never, ever in the history of humanity been a, more, a culture that's more, least prepared and more, more ill-equipped for suffering than our culture because they don't expect it and then, when it shows up, they can't explain it. They don't accept it, and they can't explain it. And so, I don't know if you agree with my explanation of suffering. But, but what I would argue, is, and my hope is, is that you would use the same level of criticism on your view of suffering than you do on my view of suffering. And then you tell me if it holds up. If, 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 if it actually can, can keep you buoyant in your times of suffering, okay? Now, here's the thing, here's the thing, right? Because our culture uh, uh, doesn't believe in God, right? God's not really on the agenda anymore. Now what we worship is, is ourselves. Some people still have the patriotism way of, view, of viewing things, but that generation's dying off. But, but, but now, by and large, it's the individualist. It's, it's all about us now, right? The question is, if you, don't, if you have a worldview that doesn't expect suffering, and then when it shows up, can't explain suffering, then what does our culture do when suffering shows up? I would argue that our culture does four things. There's four things that our culture does in response to suffering because they're not, they're not ready for it and they can't explain it. The first thing they do is they run from it like crazy, okay? They run and they run and they run and they run. They do everything in their power to get away from suffering. After they can't run anymore, and suffering comes upon them, what they do then is they relabel it. They don't call it suffering. They call it stress. See? 
Then after relabeling doesn't work, then they try to repress it. That's why our culture, our, the United States of America, and this is no exaggeration, is the most over-medicated nation in human history. Literally, more than Europe, more than the most prescription drugs are consumed in the United States of America. Why? Because when you don't expect suffering, and then when it shows up, you don't have an explanation for suffering, you got to repress it. Now, I'm not saying there's anything wrong with drugs. If that's something that you have to take for your condition, that's fine. But what I need you to know is that there's a problem when the land of the free is also the land of the medicated. So, so we turn to prescription drugs, we turn to counselors, we turn to life coaches, we turn to pornography, we turn to gambling, we turn to uh, TV, we turn to social media, we turn to Netflix, uh, we turn to fantasy football, we turn to video games. We just repress it. I'm going to keep repressing it until it's gone. Okay? So the first thing our culture does is they run. Then after they can't run, they relabel. Once they can't relabel anymore, they repress. And you know what the last thing they do? And this is the funniest one all of all of them. It's actually sad, but it's funny. The last thing that our culture does when suffering really comes is they rob from other worldviews. They're thieves. Here's what I mean. Here's what I mean. Our culture, our neighbors, our coworkers, or maybe even you, maybe even you are involved in this. You will go your whole life like there is no God. Never acknowledge him once. Then all of a sudden there's a natural disaster or a school shooting or some, some major thing. And all of a sudden on, on, on Facebook and social media, prayer hands. Let's pray. Lord, we need you. God, show up. Let's pray for the victims. What? Your worldview doesn't have a space for God. So what you do when you, you realize, everyone intuitively knows that their worldview is only good in times of, uh, in good times. And so what they do in bad times is they go looking in other worldviews for an answer because their worldview doesn't have an answer. So someone dies and all of a sudden you even saw, saw one of the guys say it. Oh, oh uh, heaven, heaven must have needed another soldier for the army. Or people say, oh, heaven must have needed another angel. So, so, so you, you, you don't acknowledge God ever. And then in times of suffering, you're an agnostic at best. And in times of suffering, prayer hands, God needed another angel. Let's get united and come together. You know what's so funny? That the humanist, the atheist, I've never have heard an atheist respond to a national tragedy. Atheists go radio silent. You never hear about them. You never hear about them. Because they have no answer. They have no answer for it. So whenever there's a real national crisis, right, you have presidents quoting scripture and you have politicians praying and you have all these people coming together for prayer visuals, but you never hear from the atheists because the atheists, the people who don't have a worldview that includes God, they know that their worldview doesn't have an answer for suffering. So why would they say something? That's why I appreciate Richard Dawkins, who is considered the, the most famous atheist in our day, because Richard Dawkins says suffering is pointless and there's no rhyme or reason for it. I respect him because he actually stays true to what he believes. Now, I don't know how Richard Dawkins would respond if he got cancer, but when he thinks about it philosophically, he says, suck it up because all of life is random. We're all just a, 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 a mistake, you know, just this random chance of molecules and cells coming together and figure it out. I respect him because at least he's being consistent. Okay? So, so here's the thing, here's the thing. 
before we move on to the next point. The first thing I want you to see with this first point is this. If you hold to a worldview that doesn't expect suffering, and then when it shows up, can't explain suffering, I would argue that you should walk away from that worldview immediately. Because suffering is not an if. Suffering is a when. And if the only time your worldview works is when times are good, that's not a good worldview. That's why Jesus says that you could either build your house on rock or on sand. And Jesus says that the way you figure out what your house is built on is not when the sun's shining, it's when the storms come. And so if a storm reveals your house is on sand, get off the sand. That worldview cannot sustain you if it can't sustain you in times of suffering. Okay? So the first thing that we see here in this passage is we see the, uh, in, this, in, in our response to this question is we see the cause of suffering. So the first part to this answer, to the question, does God allow you know, pain and suffering, is the cause of suffering. We see where suffering comes from. So now that we've looked at the cause of suffering, what I want to do now is I want to look at the purpose of suffering, the purpose of suffering. And to do that, I want to read to you from 1 Peter chapter 1, 6 through 7. 6 through 7. And what you're going to see is as we go through this, it's the, the, the first point was more of a head argument. And then the, the, deep, the deeper we go into this is going to go from being a head argument to being a heart argument. Okay, so uh, just preparing you for that. Here's what it says in 1 Peter uh, uh, chapter 1. 6 and 7. Peter says, In this you greatly rejoice. He's talking about the gospel. That's what he talks about in verses 1 through 5. He brings up the finished work of Jesus, right? And then he says, In this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while you may have had to suffer grief in all kinds of trials. Listen to this. These have come so that the proven genuineness of your faith, of greater worth than gold, which perishes even though through even though refined by fire, may result in praise, glory, and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. Okay? Now, I'm going to jump into this passage and unpack it in a second, but here's what I need you to know. Okay? Peter says that suffering is not an if. Suffering is a when. You are going to suffer. Now, let me give you a definition of suffering. In light of the first point, let me give you a definition of suffering. If suffering is a result of the fall, Adam and Eve disobeying God, right, then here's what one, one uh, theologian said. If that's the case, then suffering, listen to this, suffering is any time you experience the effects of the fall to any degree. I'll say that again. That's, that's, this is an important definition. If, if suffering is a result of the fall of man, what Adam and Eve did in Genesis 3, then that means suffering is any time you experience the fall to any degree. That's what suffering is. Here's why this is so important. Because that means suffering can be very, very little, but it can also be very big. In other words, suffering comes in all shapes and sizes. Here's what happens when you preach a sermon on suffering. Half the room relates and half the room doesn't relate. Right? Because you're like, I'm, I'm not suffering right now, so this has nothing to do with me. But what's interesting is if the definition of suffering is any time you experience the results of the fall in any degree, then we, all, all, we are all suffering to one degree or another. Does that make sense? Now, one of the things I want you to see here is that before he tells us the purpose of suffering, what, what he does here, uh, Peter, is he tells us the types of suffering. 
And here's why I love the Bible, because the Bible is so nuanced when it comes to the, the subject of suffering. The Bible doesn't just give you this generic answer, but it's very nuanced. It's, it's, it's much more gray than it is black and white. So before he tells us about the purpose of suffering, he tells us about the types of suffering. And you know he does, because look what he says in verse 6. He says, though now for a little while you may have had to suffer grief in all kinds of trials. It's actually the same thing that James says in chapter one of his letter. James says, uh, count it pure joy, brothers, when you experience trials of various kinds. So both James and Peter tell us that before they tell us about the purpose of suffering, they tell us that there are different types of suffering. There are different types of suffering. Not all suffering is created equal. And so this week I came across this really helpful article by Dr. Ray Ortland, who's a pastor. And he says that when it comes to suffering, there are three different categories when it comes to suffering. And I hope these categories will help clarify to you the, the different types of suffering. He says that the first type of suffering, listen to this, is deserved suffering. Now that sounds pretty harsh. Like, whoa, 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 whoa. What do you mean? What do you mean deserved suffering? And here's what he means. He says that the first category of suffering are the things that we are suffering from that we brought on ourselves. So if you're a student and you get detention, detention might be suffering for you, but you put yourself in detention. You see? So if you're driving and you're going 75 on a 50 and they give you a ticket, going to court or going to traffic school might be suffering for you, but you deserved it. Like you did and did something and you got consequences for it, Right? If, if you're not performing on the job and you get warned again and again and again, and then you get fired for not doing your job, yeah, that stinks. You're suffering, right? But it's deserved suffering. You lost the job. You didn't do your job. If you got laid off and everyone else got laid off, that's different. But if you got laid off by fired because you didn't do your job, hey, I'm here to pastor you. But the suffering that you brought on yourself, you brought on yourself. Does that make sense? There's deserved suffering. So, so, so if your spouse divorces you, but they're divorcing you because you cheated on them, hey, th th that divorce is suffering. That's tough. But you brought that on yourself. Okay? Th that's what I need you to see, that this, this type of suffering, the first type of suffering, is suffering that you have brought on yourself. So maybe someone doesn't trust you, but, it, but maybe you did something to lose their trust. That's suffering, but... It's deserved suffering. And there's two examples of deserved suffering in the Bible. There's a guy named Jonah who was a prophet in the Old Testament. And Jonah, in his little book, goes through a lot of suffering. But all the suffering Jonah goes through is deserved suffering. Because God's telling him to go that way, and instead he goes that way. And so God brings a whale, and then he brings a storm, and he keeps bringing stuff until he finally obeys. So it's suffering, but he brings it on himself. Same thing with King David. King David uh, goes through a lot of suffering. Not all of it is caused by him, but part of it is because there's a story where he, he, he sleeps with a woman who's not his wife, and then to cover it up, he murders the husband. He suffers after that. And hey, we feel bad for him. Let's pray for him. But it was deserved suffering. The dude cheated and then murdered. See? So what we see is that there are times where suffering is deserved. Okay? Now, the second type of suffering that Ray Ortland says that exists is innocent, innocent suffering. And here's what he means by innocent suffering. There are times where you will suffer and you did absolutely nothing wrong. So go back to the work example, right? You, you, your company lays off 40 people and you happen to be one of them. You didn't do anything wrong, 
That is innocent suffering. See? Or, 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 or you're a parent and you lose a baby. You have a miscarriage. That is innocent suffering. Okay? Or you're the spouse that gets cheated on. That is innocent suffering. So, so you see that there's, there's innocent suffering. Things that, you, a school shooting, the, those, 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 those children or teenagers are innocent sufferers. They didn't do anything wrong. Right? Or a natural disaster falls into this. There's a, there's a tornado, there's an earthquake, and, and thousands of people die. That is innocent suffering. You did nothing wrong, and yet there it was. Actually, an example from the Bible is there's, there's this part in the, in the Gospels where, where the, the people, people come up to Jesus and say, hey, this tower collapsed and many people died. That, that passage, that example, is an example of innocent suffering. Those people didn't do anything wrong. Just, it happened. Okay? So the first type of suffering is deserved. Uh, the second type of suffering is innocent. And then the third type, I would argue that every single one of us in this room, regardless of where you are in your faith journey, we experience the first two. But only people who are followers of Jesus experience the third one. Because he says that the third type of suffering is righteous suffering. And here's what he means by righteous suffering. Righteous suffering is when you are suffering because of your faith. You, you believe in Jesus and you're trying to live out those values at work or in your neighborhood or in your family. And people are persecuting you and treating you different because you are standing up for Jesus. An example of this in scripture is Abel. In the, in the Old Testament, there's a guy, his name was Abel, and his brother Cain kills him. And when God shows up to confront Cain, he says, you killed Abel because his good works testified against you. So Abel literally died because of righteous suffering. His brother couldn't deal with his good works, and so his brother took him out. And the ultimate example of righteous suffering is Jesus. Did absolutely nothing wrong, and yet suffered more than anyone in human history. And so what Ray Ortland says is that all suffering falls into one of these three categories. And what I need you to see with that is this is why this is so important. The reason why that's, this is, it's, it's important to, to break these down is that you could tell that not, not all suffering is created equal. It's just not. And, and, and I love that the Bible gives us the nuance and doesn't just pretend like all suffering is the same. Because it's not. Okay? So let's, let's go back now to... The, the, the other thing that uh, Peter brings up. So he gives us the types of, of suffering, and then he gives us the purpose of suffering. He says, listen to what he says, don't miss this. He says, these have come so that the proven genuineness of your faith, the trials have come, so that the proven genuineness of your faith of greater worth than gold, which perishes even though refined by fire, may result in praise, glory, and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. So he gives us the types of suffering, and then immediately after, he gives us the purpose. He says that suffering is like a furnace, okay? And we'll come back to that idea at the end. I, I'm going to park that there. We'll, we'll come back to that. It's really important that suffering is like a furnace. And many times in Scripture, suffering is described as a furnace because it really, really hurts, but it can also really, really purify, okay? That's how furnaces work. Now, Let's look at the purpose, okay? Because here's the thing. Some of us, part of the reason why we're struggling so much is not just because of the suffering that we're experiencing, but because we actually don't know the purpose for it. And there's nothing worse than purposeless suffering. You're like, why am I going through what am I going through, right? Why, why am I not able to have a child? Why am I not able to get a job? Why am I not able to find a spouse? Whatever it is, your, your suffering is very difficult as it is. But when you don't know the purpose for it, it makes it that much more difficult. 
But here's what I would argue. The reason why knowing the purpose of your suffering is important is because if you have the wrong theology, it will result in wrong praxology. Okay? So here's what I mean. The wrong belief will result in wrong behavior. And so knowing the purpose of your suffering is important because if you don't know why you're going through it, you're not going to respond to it appropriately. So let me give you three examples of, of purposes that people think suffering has that actually are f- very far from the truth. Okay? Here's what some people think. Some people think the reason why I'm suffering is because God is punishing me. Okay? I'm suffering because God is punishing me. But I can give you a perfect example of why that's not true. The book of Job, Job does nothing wrong. And yet he goes through, outside of Jesus, the most suffering a human being has ever gone through. But what you see is that throughout the entire book, he's described as an innocent sufferer. Not righteous that he's perfect, but an innocent sufferer because he did nothing wrong. And so what that proves to you just in Job, and there's other examples of this in the Bible, is that your suffering doesn't mean God is punishing you. So if you're suffering today, if you've suffered at some point, you're like, oh, I'm suffering because God punished me. It's just not true. And Job is a perfect example of that. Right? Another thing you might think is, oh, I know why I'm suffering. This is why these, knowing the right theology is so important. Oh, I know why I'm suffering. It's not that God's punishing me. It's that God doesn't have enough power to protect me. So we doubt God's power. We act like there's this battle going on between Satan and God. And man, Satan won this time and, and God didn't get the upper hand and, and Satan's winning. No, no, no. Satan's done. Satan lost. Satan's like a dog on a leash. He barks a lot, but he can't go anywhere. Okay, so if you think that the reason why you're suffering is because God's power might be limited, we know that's not true because in Romans 8, it says that God works all things for good, including the bad stuff. In 2 Corinthians chapter 12, Paul says that in my weakness, God's strength is magnified, his power. I boast in my weaknesses so God's power might be displayed. So clearly it can't mean that God's power is is lacking because in both Romans and Corinthians, it says that God's power is very present in our suffering, actually. And then when some of us think, okay, okay, so it's not that God's punishing me. It's not even that God's not powerful enough. It's that God has removed his presence from me. God's far away. God God forgot. He's got other stuff to think about, and he's abandoned me. He's forgotten me. Well, the reason why we know that's not true is because later on in Romans chapter 8, it says that God is near to us in our suffering. Then in another part of Corinthians, Paul says that God comforts those who are suffering so that they can then comfort others who are suffering. So think about this. This is kind of a side note, but this is important. God brings you through suffering so that you can then comfort others in suffering. So the church should be the place where most comfort for suffering is offered. If we can all embrace our suffering and use it for God's glory... The church should be the place where suffering is most embraced and more, most empathized with, okay? So, so we know that it can't be that God's not present because it says in Romans that he's very present. And in Corinthians, it says not only is he present, but he goes out of his way to comfort us so that we might then comfort others. You see, but those are just three examples of how bad theology can make you blame God for something that he hasn't done and make you angry at God about something that's not right, Okay? Now, here's the thing. Here's the thing. Uh, John Piper, who's a pastor uh, in Minnesota, he retired already. He's a pastor and a theologian. He says, and he, he wrote this very helpful illustration. I'm going to read it to you in a second. He says that 
God, when it comes to purpose of suffering, God will always give you the macro reasons, but he will rarely give you the micro ones. Okay? So God will give you the macro. You see it all throughout the Bible. He gives you the macro reasons, but he will rarely give you the micro. Okay? So we're going to look at some of the macro ones in a second. But look at this illustration that, that I have it here written that John Piper uses. Okay? I, I want you to follow with me. He uses this. This, and then I'm going to give you another one that Tim Keller uses. And both of them are very uh, uh, helpful when it comes to how God gives us macro, but usually never gives us the micro. Look at this illustration. It's a made-up illustration that John Piper uses. He says, think of this. You are a blacksmith making horseshoes. He says, you are hammering on a white hot shoe, and it ricochets off and hits you in the leg and burns you. In your haste, to tend to your leg, you let the shoe alone unfinished. You never finish the shoe. Then you wonder why God let this happen. You are singing a hymn and doing his will. Your helper, your assistant, not knowing the horseshoe was unfinished, gathered it up and put it with the other horseshoes. Later, there was an invasion of your country by a hostile army with a powerful cavalry. cavalry. They come through your town and demand that you supply them with food and with shoes for their horses. You comply. Their commander has his, shore, his, his horse shoed by his own smith using the stolen horseshoes, and the unfinished shoe with the thin weak spot is put on the commander's horse. In the decisive battle against the loyal troops defending your homeland, the enemy commander is leading the final charge. The weak shoe snaps and catches on a root and causes his horse to fall. He crashes to the ground, and his own soldiers, galloping at full speed, trample him to death. This causes such confusion that the defenders are able to rout the enemy, and the country is saved. Now, you might say, well, it would sure help me trust God if he informed me of these events so that I would know why the horseshoe ricocheted and burned my leg. And he says, well, maybe it would help you, but maybe not. He says, God cannot make plain all that he is doing because there are, listen to this, there are millions and millions and millions and millions of effects of every event in your life, the good and the bad. God guides them all. They have micro purposes and macro purposes. He cannot tell you all of them because your brain cannot hold it. Okay? And Tim Keller actually uses a very similar illustration, not in the same vein, but he tells his church all the time. He, was a, a, he, he, was a, he, he retired already, but he, he was a, a church planter, a Presbyterian church planter in New York. And he tells his people, hey, our church exists, Redeemer Church exists because of Watergate. They're like, Watergate? What does Watergate have to do with our church? And he's like, when, when Richard Nixon was involved in the whole Watergate scandal... One of the things that happened during that time, uh, because there was so much chaos in the government, is it was really hard for people to get visas. And so he says there was a professor that was working at Reformed Theological Seminary, which is where he was a student. That professor had already finished his time teaching and was going to go back to Europe. But because of all the things that were happening with Watergate, he stayed one extra semester. Tim Keller takes this professor for the last semester that he's there, and this professor is the one who convinces him to become a Presbyterian and also places in his heart the desire to plant a church. So then he becomes a Presbyterian, he goes off into the denomination, and eventually plants a church in New York. And so Tim Keller tells his congregation that because of Watergate, our church exists. 
Because I never would have been a Presbyterian and I never would have wanted to plant a church if it wasn't for that professor at that time in that moment. Think about that. So, so Richard Nixon's suffering, deserved suffering, resulted in a church being planted in New York 30 years later. You see, we don't know what God is doing with suffering. We have no idea. And, but here's the thing. God doesn't ever tell you he's going to tell you. Nowhere in the Bible does he say he's going to tell you. So God will never tell you the micro reasons, but he will always tell you the macro, the, the, the overall reasons. And in Scripture, there's three macro reasons that God says that, that for our purpose. The first macro reason for suffering is his praise, God's praise. The, th the second one is our progress. And then the third one is to realign our priorities. Those are the ones that God makes very clear in Scripture. God not might, he might not tell you everything, but he tells you these three. The first reason why you suffer, according to God, the first purpose of your suffering is his glory, his praise. Now, as hard as that sounds, in John chapter 9, there's a story where there's a blind man, and the disciples go up to Jesus and say, hey, uh, uh, there's a blind man who, who sinned, his, his mother or his father? Because in that world, it was all deserved suffering. All the pain you went through was because you deserved it. It was moralistic. Jesus says, neither, actually. Jesus says, this man is suffering, and this man is blind, so that in this moment, I might glorify God by healing him. So one of the reasons why we suffer is to glorify God. Because God shows up in a very specific way in our suffering that ends up magnifying him more than any other situation. Another reason, another macro reason for our, 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 our purpose for our suffering is our progress. Now, this one's interesting. In John chapter 15, Jesus says that he is a master gardener. And that one of the ways that a gardener grows his vines or his, his crops is he prunes them. Now, the thing about pruning is that it hurts. Pruning has never felt good to a plant. But the pruning is then what results in your fruitfulness. In Hebrews chapter 12, we see something similar. The author of Hebrews says that God uses, his, uses our suffering and, and our pain to, to literally, it's in, the, in the Greek, is to exercise us like a gym. Like God is a trainer. And you, you know what a good trainer does, right? Like if you go to the gym tomorrow, and some of you maybe are going now for your New Year's resolution, give it a few weeks and you'll stop. But, 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 but. but if you go to the gym, right, here's what a good trainer does. A good trainer evalu evaluates you. And he works on the muscles that you're weak in, right? So if you got huge biceps, he's not just going to make you do bicep curls for, for, for three hours. A good trainer will identify the muscles that you need to develop. Then when he gives you weight, he's not going to give you too little weight because if it's too little weight, your muscle's not going to grow. But he also is not going to give you too much weight because too much weight will, rip your, will tail your muscle. He, 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 he addresses the right place with the right weight. That's what a good trainer does. A bad trainer can really hurt you, but God is the most skilled trainer of all time, and he uses your suffering to grow you. That's why, listen, the most immature, shallow, fragile people are the people who haven't suffered. Have you noticed that? Like, have you ever met someone who hasn't suffered yet? Like, they're arrogant, they're, 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 they're fragile, they assume a lot of things, you can, just, you can just smell it on them. Like you just, you just haven't gone through anything yet. G give it a little bit. Because suffering does something to you. Suffering can grow you. It can help you in your progress. And the last thing suffering does that the Bible makes very clear is that suffering realigns your priorities. And here's what I mean by that. One of the things that suffering has done in my life is that it shows you what you actually worship. 
It shows you what you're actually building your life on. It shows you what you really prioritize in your life. It will always reveal it to you. So for example, let's say you're going through suffering because you've lost a job, but your response to it is like abnormally extreme. It might be because that job was more than a job to you. It was your God. It's where your self-worth came from. See? God just revealed that you were actually building your life on your career instead of on your Savior. Or someone breaks up with you. And yeah, breakups are hard, but it's three, two, three years and you're still dealing with the breakup. There's a good chance that that person was probably more than just a good thing. It was a God thing in your life. Suffering will always reveal that to you. That's how suffering works. You know what suffering also does when it comes to realigning our priorities? A lot of us, instead of viewing God as a father, we view God as a sugar daddy. So as long as God keeps giving you stuff, it's all about him. Glory to God. But suffering comes and then you realize, whoa, I don't need God anymore because if you're not going to take care of me, then I don't want you. What you see there is that you don't want a father, you want a sugar daddy. Someone who gives you everything you need and if at any point he stops giving it to you, we're done. Suffering will reveal that to you. Quick. And the last thing that suffering does when it comes to realigning your priorities is that it shows you that the original decision you made was the best one. So, so, so if you chose Jesus, and this, I mean, making an assumption you've believed in Jesus, if you choose Jesus, suffering reinforces the, the, the decision you made. Like, this is why I chose Jesus. Suffering pushes you deeper into Jesus. So, so we got to praise God for the waves that push us deeper and, and who push us into the rock of ages. We are holding on to the rock of ages and the waves push us deeper into it. It's the only rock I got. Suffering reveals that to you, okay? And so that's what we see. Let's go back to the three points. The first thing we see is the cause of suffering. The first part of the answer is the cause of suffering. The second part of the answer is the purpose of suffering. And then the last part of the answer is the abolition or the removal or the eradication of suffering, okay? And to answer this final one, I want to read to you uh, from Isaiah, which is in the Old Testament. In Isaiah 53, verses 3 through 4, look what it says. He, this is a random person. Isaiah is just writing to us about this random person. We don't know who he is. Okay, but listen to what this person goes through. He was despised and rejected by mankind, a man of suffering and familiar with pain. Like one from whom people hide their faces, he was despised, and we held him in low esteem. Surely he took up our pain and bore our suffering, yet, he considered, yet we considered him punished by God and stricken and afflicted. Now, some of you are like, whoa, 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 what is this? I thought that this was like the, 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 the hopeful part. Like, I thought things were, things were going to start looking up. You just read the most depressing passage in the whole Bible. Who is this guy? And whoever it is, I'm glad I'm not him. And how is this in any way good news? How is this in any way the eradication and the, the abolition of suffering? This guy, this is terrible. This guy seems more like a victim than a victor. How is this guy going to help me? Well, let me keep reading. Look what it says at the end of the same chapter. It says, yet it was the Lord's will to crush him and cause him to suffer. And though the Lord makes his life an offering for sin, he will see his offspring and prolong his days. And the will of the Lord will prosper in his hand. Verse 11, after he, this guy, this mystery man, after he has suffered, he will see the light of life and be satisfied. By his knowledge, my righteous servant will justify many and he will bear their iniquities. 
So here's what's crazy about this passage. Whoever this person is, it's a very unique person because they suffered more than anyone else who's ever suffered. And yet at the same time, so he's the ultimate victim. And yet at the end of the passage, we discover he's also the ultimate victor. He's the ultimate victim and the ultimate victor. And so you're thinking, what does this random Old Testament obscure passage uh, uh, has to do with me? And I would argue it has everything to do with you. And the reason why it has everything to do with you is because the person that Isaiah is describing is the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is the ultimate victim and the ultimate victor. Jesus Christ can relate to your suffering because he's a victim. But then he can redeem your suffering because he's a victor. The same person does both. That's who Jesus Christ is. Jesus Christ is the fulfillment of this prophecy. And he is also, listen to this, I'm going to tie it all back together. Get ready for this. He is also the greater Adam. Who's Adam? Adam is the guy that I brought up at the beginning. Remember what I said? The reason why we suffer is because a guy named Adam was in a garden and he disobeyed God about a tree. He disobeyed God about concerning a tree. And because he disobeyed, then all of a sudden suffering was introduced to the world. Jesus Christ not only fulfills this prophecy, but Jesus Christ is the greater Adam. Because the first Adam disobeyed God about a tree, and as a result, he introduced suffering. The greater Adam obeyed God concerning a tree in a, in a greater garden, and as a result, he abolished suffering forever. Jesus Christ is the greater Adam. Listen, listen. Jesus Christ in his suffering, he experienced total abandonment, so that through him, we might experience total acceptance. Jesus experienced total abandonment so that we might experience total acceptance. Jesus Christ at the cross experienced a one-of-a-kind suffering so that when we go through our various kinds of suffering, he might be there for us. It says, it says that, 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 that phrase there where, where, where Peter says that we, have, we will experience various kinds of suffering, the Greek word there is multicolored. We will experience multicolored suffering. That same word multicolored is used to describe the gospel in another place. And so Jesus has given us a multicolored gospel for our multicolored problems. Come on, church. Am I preaching right now? Like, I feel like I'm not preaching right now. Okay? That's crazy. Jesus Christ came to do that for you and for me. That's what he came to do. And we got to understand that. That in him you have this Savior who can relate to you because he was a victim, and yet he can redeem you because he's a victor. That's crazy. When you get that, it changes everything. It has to. It has to change everything. It's the only way you can respond to it. The sovereign God became a suffering God. Jesus Christ in his punishment, Jesus Christ's suffering led to punishment so that our suffering can lead to purification. Jesus Christ experienced God's forsakenness so that by faith in him we might experience God's faithfulness. Jesus Christ went through the ultimate furnace for us, and so now we know that he will be in the smaller furnaces with us. Come on. That's what this says. That's what we're seeing. That's why Christianity is different from any other religion. And you might be saying, whoa, 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 whoa. So hold on, hold on, hold on. So you mean to tell me after all this, why would God, listen to this, this is the question you're still asking, asking and struggling with, why would God allow bad things to happen to good people. Well, in light of everything we learned this morning, it might not be bad what God's doing because God has many reasons for what he's doing and there's no such thing as a good person. So the question shouldn't be, why does God let bad things happen to good people? 
The better question is, why does God allow good things to happen to bad people? That's the question we should be asking. Because we don't deserve anything from him. And we know we don't because God treated Jesus the way we deserved. So that now by faith in him, he might treat us the way he deserved. That's the problem with that question. You're asking the wrong question. And you know how I know that bad things can happen to good people even though none of us are good? It's because at the cross, the worst thing happened to the best person. And so there's no such thing as senseless suffering because Jesus, if, if suffering was senseless and there was no purpose, then Jesus would have suffered for no reason. But we know that God had a wonderful purpose for, God's, for Jesus' suffering. And so if you're sitting here today and you're like, hold on, I thought you told me that that Jesus came to abolish slavery. I'm not, not, not slavery, well, you did that too, but, but suffering. I thought you said that he came to abolish suffering. Abolish means that he got rid of it, but I'm still suffering. How, can, how did he get rid of it if I'm still suffering? Well, here's the beautiful thing about Jesus. The first thing Jesus came was to relate to our suffering. Then at the cross, he redeemed our suffering. And then the Bible says one day he will come back to remove our suffering. He relates he redeems, and one day, he'll remove. This is going to seem like a, a random way to end, but you know who, so random, but only my mind works like this. You know who my favorite action star is of all time? Steven Seagal. You know why? Not only because he's super calm and a baller, right? But here's why. Steven Seagal did this type of karate called judo. You know what judo is? Judo is a type of martial arts that instead of Punching, they use your energy against you. Jesus Christ used judo on suffering. He took suffering and, and used suffering to make suffering suffer. He took death and used death to kill death. He, he, he took every enemy's like, we got him. It's over. We got him. Jesus took suffering in order to destroy suffering. He, he, he died in order to kill death. Isn't that crazy? That's what he did. And so suffering suffers and death dies because of what Jesus did. That's what we see. And so listen, I'm not sure what you're going through today. I, and I can't even tell you with confidence what the purpose of your suffering is. But you know what I can tell you? I can tell you with complete confidence because of the cross. I don't know why God might be doing what he's doing, but it's definitely not because he doesn't love you. Because he proved that he loved you at the cross. So the question that we asked and answered this morning is this. Does God allow pain and suffering? Yes, God does allow pain and suffering. But through Jesus, he also relates to our suffering, redeems our suffering, and will one day remove our suffering. Amen? Amen. Let's pray.